0: on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets. Now they are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. I am a feminist, but this week I was told by a doctor I met at another podcasting event that after the menopause, women age, these are his direct words, in dog years. He said, for every seven years, your face ages now, i.e. the aging process. It's going to age that much in one year after the menopause. One year. That's what he said to me. (laughs) And I have not got over it. He said that to me like five days ago. I have thought about it all day for the rest of those five days. Like it just keeps coming to me, dog years. And I had a friend, I told them about it, and I just keep texting her, dog years, dog years, dog years. He said that to your face? Yes. He said, I wow. know that you haven't had the menopause because <laughs> your skin's great. It's going to age in dog years, dog years. I was so upset by it. I was like, what do you mean? He was just like seven years for every one year previous. So listen, I know some postmenopausal women who look not, they're certainly not aging in dog years. I, I, I don't know that this can be every single woman. And of course some people who aren't women also have menopause but I feel like if you are a man the world does not judge you entirely cosmetically. People are like, "Oh, he's got more distinguished."
1: Nobody's not shagging George Clooney is all I'm saying. That's all I'm well, saying. I don't know. I've, I've seen George Clooney recently and I, I I've changed my mind. So <laughs>
0: What? You wouldn't you would you would t- you would turn down the Cloonster
1: now. Oh, um, yeah, I would now. You know, maybe t- I kind of, if I'm honest, by the time he left the R, I I was a bit... Do you know what it was? It was the Nescafe ads or whatever, the coffee ads he's doing now that made me think, We don't need the money. <laughs> nah.
0: Well, that's a different value judgment. That's not cosmetically about what he looks like. <laughs> what uh, I'm saying yeah. is the world projects debonairness onto aging men. I'd still do Robert Redford. Good.
1: <laughs> no, he, no, I get it. He's, you know what it is? It's charisma. It's energy. And you know what? When that guy said that to you, that doctor, he should have said it like a compliment. Do you know what I mean? Like when you poke past the menopause, it's like a new chapter in your life, a new chapter of maturity. So that's, um, yeah, shame on him. I'm not interested him, really. in
0: maturity, Athena. I'm interested <laughs> in my face being tight and lineless. Yeah, and I know. Um, I know. This is why it's the I'm a feminist, but it's a confession. And I think older women look absolutely beautiful if I'm looking at other women and I think, oh my God, character. You know, I can look at an 85 year old woman and go, look at the character and wisdom in her face, and she's still beautiful and look at her bone structure. But I don't want any lines on my face. What I'm saying to you is that I feel like. I'm very into
1: diversity of beauty for others. But not yourself. No. Yeah, for others. Okay. Well, the punished. way you do that is- Terrifying. You want to stay in your house, pretend you're not down forever, and engage with everyone with an Instagram filter. That's what I would do. And that way, no one has to know. No one has right. to know.
0: Well, I mean, that's sort of my life now anyway. So, you know, I don't actually use filters, but that's not because of a lack of
1: vanity. That's because I don't really know how to use filters and the technology <laughs> bores me. I'm a feminist, but I say really ghastly things about Pretty Patel. It's really gendered insults. Things like oh. "she's a witch," mm. "she's a witch," "she's a," you know, with the b word. Yeah. And and I know I shouldn't. You know, you can I know I should just say. I we we, yeah. we oh, I on bit? the internet. Okay. I think it's fine. I think it's I'm fine. of the opinion that she's a bitch. <laughs> See, that's not funny. That's really bad. That's really. I should say I don't like her policies. I don't like. You know, she's a woman. She's a very high-powered woman. She's worked mm-hmm. her way up from wherever she started. I don't know. I imagine. I don't think she comes from poverty, but she comes from somewhere and she's where she is now and it's an achievement. And you know what? Fine, park all of that. She she has beliefs I don't like and she has policies I don't like, but I don't just attack them. I attack her Mm. and I will continue to do it well, I like it.
0: I said recently, I'm a feminist, but if I saw Pretty Patel walking out of a public loo with her skirt tucked into her knickers, I wouldn't tell her. <laughs> I mean, and that's the ultimate sisterhood code for me. Yeah. That's the ultimate. If she were in a chain, if she, if we were both in a fitting room, like in a department store, and she looked amazing <laughs> in a colour, I wouldn't say a word. And that, to me, that's that's real a real lack of feminism. That's yeah. a, if she were crying in a public loo because a man had left her in a nightclub having had a fight, I wouldn't comfort her. And I wouldn't say no. it's all going to be all right. Do you know what? I wouldn't say, do you know what I wouldn't say? You're too good for him, babe. Even if it was two in the morning and we were both drunk.
1: No. I say I'm maybe, sorry. maybe you've done it. I say maybe you did it. Maybe you deported him or something. <laughs> maybe. Well, that really brings that, that that might bring
0: me to my next I'm a feminist but, Athena, because my next time a feminist but is I'm a feminist but. That doctor I told you about, that face doctor, he told me that as you get older, and he said it doesn't really happen to cis men in the same way, he said, um, because they lose a bit of elasticity after because of testosterone, but there's not a shelf for them. He said, as you get older, your skull will shrink. It's a true story. This is what he said. And the fat on your cheeks will migrate down the face, past the border here, and sit on your chin so your chin your jawline will get soft and my first thought was where's pretty patel when you need her to protect a border <laughs> i don't want this migrant fat coming down and passing the cheekline border and resettling here you know you know me you know me i'm always i'm always campaigning for refugees but i'm not interested in the migration of fat
1: that's all i'm saying I mean, I'm no doctor myself, but it sounds like he's making up a lot of stuff here. Your, your cheek migrates down. Like, like that opposite me. droopy dog. Do you know that dog? That, pe- you know, that cartoon dog. Mm. What's he called? Opposite droopy. That's what we all look like. Like the tectonic. It sounds like your, your cheek's made up of like tectonic plates that are like shifting down and down and down and down. I mean... He showed me diagrams. <sighs> he literally showed me diagrams
0: on an iPad. Apparently the fat just starts to slide forward. As your skull shrinks, it's got it's it's smaller so there's not as much for this to this sort of comes away and it just starts to drift out isn't that okay you know what again that is great for others
1: but i know my face as i know my face and i want it to be high and tight which you know what and it's it's high and tight now and it will remain high and tight and you know why two words grace jones all right tell that doctor to explain her okay he can't explain her she looks amazing i don't think she's gone gone under the knife um uh, obviously like she's she might have had a little bit of. Don't get something, me wrong. Something. like you know, as a black woman, you know what they say <laughs> about us. But I suspect there's a little bit of um, a little bit, a bit of porcupines going on, a few porcupines going on in his um, in what he's saying. Like your, your cheeks travel but down it, it, to your chin or down to your jawline. Um, just the fat, just some of the fat, oh, not
0: the, fat the whole cheek. The cheek. It's oh. not, it's not like um, the rays of the lost ark where they see the ark of the covenant. <laughs> And then their faces melt off. Although that is what I started to imagine. But it's it is that, but it's happening under the skin. So it's not so That ripened. can be it's easily so fixed. What you do is you
1: get two ping pong balls and you stick them in your cheeks and you just give yourself that little puffy or scotch eggs or whatever you fancy really, whatever feels comfortable in there. I think that will that'll will fix it.
0: I have got squirrel cheeks. <laughs> so maybe just yeah. nuts.
1: I'm a feminist, but I fi- I think I think I find pedicures more empowering than suffrage. Mm-hmm. Because I voted the other day. We had local elections and I didn't feel that great about it. I just ticked my boxes and walked away. Then I got a pedicure and I felt wonderful uh, because we were allowed to get pedicures after a long break, right? And I thought, actually, I just want my nails to look good. I'm not, you know, I mean, I I do like politics, but, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do like politics, but if it came down to politics or a pedicure, it would be a hard A hard old decision for me. That pedicure was the
1: nicest. Honestly, I had it in the diary. As soon as the lockdown rules were were kind of released, I was like on the phone, booked me in. Honestly, she was there for hours dealing with my heels. Uh, And I just thought to myself, this feels nicer than when I voted, because we're voting a lot these days and nothing's really changing. But when I get a pedicure, I can (laughs) wear my heels. So... Well, listen, I'd love to judge you, Athena, as wanting in the feminist category there. But
0: if you saw the state of my shiny shellac (laughs) toenails, you'd know full well what a throbbing hypocrite I am because it was the first thing I did because lockdown was unkind to feet. Let's be very honest. And mine now are baby Mm -hmm. feet. Everything's been scraped off. The coral polish. Ugh, they're a little bundle of joy. Um, I'm a feminist, but now having talked to that doctor, I want treatments to provoke my collagen because that's something you can do. You provoke it; it's like picking a fight with it, where you go, "Ooh, you're rubbish, collagen! You're not not even doing your job anymore." And then the poly- collagen goes, "What? Yes, I am!" and it fights. And so, if you do stuff to sort of provoke your collagen, I mean, don't do it at home. Don't just shout at your collagen. Don't and don't just prick it with a fork. Like you got to go and have it done by an expert. But it's true if you start to provoke. And rile your collagen, it starts to rebuild and fight back like some kind of army. The, the human body is truly, truly amazing. But you can aggravate your feminism. Uh, Oh, your collagen. (laughs) Sorry, that's terrible. Okay, I'm a feminist, but I've accidentally just confused the words collagen and feminism. So I actually am the worst feminist in the world. That's official now. I don't think I've ever, it was a total accident, but now I feel genuinely. Please have a last one. Three
1: women, both feminism and collagen will be our savers. But anyway, my last one is I'm a feminist, but being in the heterosexual family situation that I am, I'm quite happy for the man to drive all the time, forever. Margate, drive. Mm. Kent Coast drive, Isla White drive, but I'm just I'm happy with this situation. I'm happy being the navigator, which means I what well, I navigate in my sleep. I just fall asleep and I get there. I'm like, well, I'm really good at navigating. This is great. Um I, I never thought Me I'd be Yeah. Oh, I just don't when he picks up his keys, I'm like, yes. <laughs> it's not even a conversation anymore.
0: <laughs> it's great. Well, I'm a feminist, but I believe the sat has saved many marriages. Mm. Because if the sat-nav gets it wrong, then we can both blame the sat-nav. You know, yeah. But
1: the sat-nav doesn't either. It doesn't usually get it it, it, wrong. It, Mine took me up a one-way street the other day. But luckily, I'm of the mind that um, people don't follow machines, right? Machines should follow people. I don't trust these machines. So luckily, I saw the sign. And I was like, I'm not going to obey the machine. I'm going to obey the sign. Because I I'm, I, will, I bought him. I own that machine. He doesn't own me. It's interesting. Your sat-nav's a, a man. A man. Oh, God, I'm a feminist. But all my tech is male why Alexa, um, I, Alexa? Don't have, I don't have an Alexa oh,
0: it's not you Alexa I'm talking about you not to you <laughs>
1: I don't have Alexa no I wouldn't get her she's recording
0: everything <sighs> I say I don't want her it's Tom we've got one in the bedroom can you even imagine oh
1: I can't imagine it, in the, something spying on you when the fascists come they'll have it all down there everything we've said they'll know your bedtime <sighs>
0: they'll know a lot more than that it's good intel it's good intel <laughs> I'm telling you From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host, Athena Cablenu, and our very special guests, Belle, Rabira, Addy, and Dr. Christine Ekachi, talking about hidden inequality. Woo! Woo! This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is Athena Koblenu. We are talking about hidden inequalities. How are you, Athena Koblenu?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Deborah?
0: I'm all right. I'm all right. Excellent. So our topic today, Athena, is hidden inequality. Do you feel like there are hidden inequalities in our society that we do not pay enough attention to? Not just the ones we were bang
1: on about. Oh God, absolutely. And I think, you know, that is how prejudices endure. The the obvious ones are there. If someone walks down the street and says, I don't like black people, I'm like, well, you don't like black people. But if someone walks down the street and thinks it, right, then I'll never know. Right? And that's kind of what hidden inequalities is. It's like how people articulate their prejudice in subconscious ways or hidden ways uh, that affect our lives. And That's almost what we mean when we talk about institutional racism or when we talk about racism and being embedded structurally, when we talk about structural racism. So hidden inequality is massive. I'm using a a horrible analogy, but it's like kind of, you know, you get pigs finding truffles in the forest, right? Imagine you're looking for truffles. Imagine you're looking for something horrible. Uh, That's what it's like. And sniffing out those horrible things is, is kind of what we as progressive people have to train ourselves to do. And then we have to train ourselves to shout out loud about them when we find them. So
0: what, can you name any hidden inequalities that you think you can see that aren't often talked about?
1: Oh, let's talk about uh, ones that are are kind of, they're they're spoken about, but not not acknowledged enough. So if you're a black child and in school, for example, and you're quite uh, talkative and gregarious all of a sudden that might be interpreted as aggressive by a teacher right? Mm-hmm. or um, or you know you might be bored because you're more advanced in the lesson but if you're black it's often interpreted to be something negative right um, I have examples of, of people who have children who have had to have conversations with their teachers about you know getting feedback about their kids behaviour um, interpreting their behaviour as negative and really in fact there's there's an underlying cause of they're bored because they're too intelligent or they're three years old and three year olds are a bit nuts you, you know what I mean? you can't put judgement on three year olds that's a hidden inequality right there you are treating somebody different based on your perceptions but it's not against the law to treat someone differently it's not against the law to say that one child is angry another child is, is bored right that's a hidden inequality right there and you have to train yourself to understand how that black child is being treated differently based on their race in in healthcare if you are a woman and you're in pain and you're not believed but if you're a man and you are believed right that's a hidden inequality it's not illegal to say I believe you I don't believe you technically it's not really illegal right? but it happens um, so these hidden inequalities result in people being treated differently based on what they are perceived to be racially, culturally, age even, on any equality grounds ability. And they affect us all. And they are the hardest things, they're the hardest stains to wash out of society. They're the hard ones. You know, these ones are the explicit ones. It's the implicit ones we really want to get rid of.
2: And
0: I'm going to say... There are some we're used to because they're part of the status quo mm. that we think of as normal or really the way the world is or, or or the way the world should be. And then whenever we tip one of those, it seems like, oh, no, there's unfairness in the other direction. And people are much more worked up about that. So, for example, the Me Too movement, for generations, men were pretty much unilaterally believed. Mm. So it's like, you know, she's a, you know, if a woman says – he hurt me. Uh, she's a gold digger, she's an attention seeker, she asked for it, she changed her mind, blah blah blah. That was that was the assumption. And me too's flipped that. So now there is an assumption. If ten women get together and write to a body, like BAFTA or Netflix, and say, All ten of us have had this experience with this man, and he has done some things that are um traumatic, traumatized us and some of the things he's done have been criminal and uh, we have no way of proving that. And if it went through the court, there's, nobody else was there when he did it. And so uh, all we've got is our numbers, that there's 10 of us with the same story. And if there's 10 of us with the same story, there's probably another 50 or so, or at least 20 who don't want to come forward because of the ramifications and digging up their trauma or, you know, all sorts. So, that means this person is a serial offender. And a lot of people are saying, but hold on a minute, now there's an inequality in society because men are not being believed and there's no due process here. And what about, well, that, I know that man's done something worse than this man. And this man is being sort of taking a fall, but what about men who've done worse that are still working? And what we're really saying there is all the human cannon fodder used to be female. Used to be women got pushed out of jobs, women were traumatized out of jobs, women left show business, for example, because they couldn't handle anymore because they had to keep seeing their abuser, etc., etc., etc. And now it's probably true that some, well, it is true that some men have done worse things and they're still working, and some of them we know who they are, and they're in fact very famous and very wealthy, and they're protected by very, very, very expensive lawyers. And some men have done terrible things but less terrible things and they're now not working for probably five to eight years because it's not so much really time's up as time out as Kevin Spacey is back. See, I see doing mm. another movie. So it's not really cancer culture, it's time out culture. It's like, well, we we find what you did repugnant. If we can't take it through the law courts because we can't prove it and we know that nearly all assault cases get knocked out and nothing happens to the perpetrator but a lot of people are uncomfortable including women because we're used to the old inequality
3: Mm.
0: we're used to women just having to walk away with nothing devastated traumatized sexually traumatized bullied whatever it is we're used to that that's been going on for generations so the whole history of the world we're not used to this one and so we go oh is this okay is this right where the women are believed and the man isn't believed because we remember the old one that's been around Mm. since i was born where the woman is not believed and the man is believed and so do you see what i mean by this
1: absolutely and it's really interesting this using that example and talking about hidden inequalities because what we have is a legal system that actually isn't fit for purpose when we're Mm. talking about these kind of um, crimes some of these things aren't considered to be crimes but the, their behaviors that result in making people feel a certain way about working somewhere. Um and the kind of they enable a kind of approach to work if you are a woman that you know you've got to turn a blind eye to it. Oh, it's a streepy Dave, don't worry about him. Dave is not a real person, just an example for this story. Um but it's it, you know, that is a hidden inequality. The fact about- these are laws, these- <laughs> The fact that he's David Beckham—that's no, not David Beckham—he's lovely. So I hear. Anyway, the fact that these laws were, were written by men many years ago um, and are, have been maintained by men and developed by men, and obviously women have gotten involved—you know, relatively recently—but they're still constructs of an old society, and we cannot apply our new understanding of society to them. Okay, so if you know the kind of things we're talking about uh, that were supposedly—I say supposedly—done by the by the men who you might be speaking about. You know, how does the law deal with mm-hmm. the activity where well, it can't, it's not fit for purpose. And that is the hidden mm-hmm. inequality. And that is why women particularly are in a situation where we not only don't think we can be believed, we don't even know if we believe ourselves because the thing that is meant to protect us, the thing we're supposed to be able to access, to be able to say, well, you've done this to me, it's not right. Mm-hmm. So let's put it through a process that will end up in a court that will then hopefully find you guilty and me honest we can't do that because we, we can't insert our experience into this legal system, which is why so many rape cases are unprosecuted and which is why so many people don't tell people they've been assaulted in, in the first place. How do you tear apart a legal system and put it back together again to police people's behaviour? And the interesting thing is a lot of the time when men, and some women too, it's not just men, but, but, it is, um, but when mostly men behave in this way, they know exactly where to draw the line. They know how when you when i've heard I mean i've heard i've, heard, I've read certain testimonies and I've, I've read about what people are supposed to have done and what's happened is men have known exactly how far they can take their inappropriateness and inappropriateness is not even the right word i need a stronger word but i'll, I'll no, use that traumatizing yeah. abusive behavior exactly that's th- those are much better words and they know how to disempower their victim but they know how to disempower their victim to the extent that their victim can't do anything about it because the law is on their side Okay, and that is a perfect example of a hidden inequality.
0: And a lot of what has come out recently about some men is what they've done is absolutely criminal, but it cannot be proven. And so, you know, the ways that it's been done have been have been ways that have made it impossible for a woman to prove that what they yeah. did was criminal. And the power structures around it supported those actions making the women feel helpless. So that is an as a prime example of a hidden inequality because yeah, we could stand up and say, and people did report it at the time. People said, why didn't you report at the time? Often people did and they were just told, you're lucky he likes you or don't complain because you won't get booked on that job because he's going to do that job and no one's going to fire him. So you know, the idea that no one said anything at the time is just not true. There was just no power structure supporting women at the time. You know, here's the thing, every time something comes out about one of these men, I will have at least a couple of friends who will go, yeah, he did that to me or he tried to do that to me or I had an incident with that man, but I won't come out about it because I'm not in that place too at the moment or I don't want my career to be defined by it or whatever. I just don't feel strong enough to do it. So, you know, the number of women who are not coming out Mm. whenever 10 or 20 women come out is very large. It's very large.
1: Yeah. And it, I think they are protected. These men are protected. When you hit them down there, they are protected by the negative impact that these stories not just have on the man who is supposedly the perpetrator, on the woman calling it out. The idea that you coming out and getting your justice is going to negatively affect you in terms of your, your perception, your your earnings, the jobs that you're on. It's really shocking, you know. It's another hidden inequality to talk about the business that we're in, which is like the creative industry, show business, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. You know, the idea that you should be lucky to be where you are. Okay, fine. You know, you're being abused, you're being coerced, you're being made to feel like a piece of meat. But it doesn't matter because you're on the set of a movie or you're on a TV show. So mm-hmm. this idea that the rules don't apply because this business is different. It's a vacuum. It's a vacuum or prosecco. It's a prosecco vacuum where anything goes, right? And. Uh, mm-hmm. Which uh, is a weird way to put it, but I'm in a very weird mood. It's often because <laughs> in acting, it's
0: like, oh, well, in acting, you're kissing people anyway. Yeah, you, you're exactly. changing backstage and someone might come in while you're taking your top off, which is not doesn't an really office, happen if you're you an know,
1: accountant. It's not, it's not, you know, this isn't a spreadsheet world. You know, this isn't, this isn't prim and proper. You know, toughen up, get some, th- get a, grow thick skin, you know, play along. And you don't want to play along, but then you see everyone else playing on, but they're just as scared as you are. These are all things that enable some people to get away with what they get away with and dissuade us if we are victims from doing anything about it and by the time we are able to do something about it like you said very hard to prove and reputationally we wonder if if doing something about it is going to have more harm do more harm than good and it's a horrible situation to be in and my only hope is that you know people still have the courage you know to come out having said that i would never put pressure on anyone you know, if if someone feels like they don't want to come out, I 100% understand why they, they wouldn't want to talk about something that's happened to them. I, I, I sincerely do understand that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, completely, completely. Sometimes it's just too traumatising. So the hidden inequality I want to talk about today with our guests is something that I was contacted about, I was emailed directly about that I did not know about. And I feel like everyone should know about it. And I was shocked I didn't know about it. And it was that there's a huge disparity between death in childbirth between black women and white women in this country. And when we think of death in childbirth, we generally think, oh, that's something, you know, Victorian or before the First World War. And that doesn't really, you know, that would be very rare to happen now. But in fact, The figures are really just absolutely shocking when it comes to black women. So, Christine, could you tell us a little bit about the difference and this, um, I mean, what should not be hidden, but recent studies have come out and exposed it, this terrible, terrible injustice?
4: Sure. So, I mean, you're right. It is incredibly shocking to realise that we have such stark differences in outcomes for some women who essentially should be having the most joyous and exciting time of their lives right which is having a baby in the UK it's important to state that we are we are really lucky maternal mortality is incredibly low and that is testament to the hard work of the obstetricians the midwives the GPs Um, all of the healthcare professionals and indeed allied professionals that work together to make pregnancy safe. Saying that is quite sad to see that that low mortality rate is not enjoyed by everybody necessarily. And what we have found, because we have great statistics and great um, ways of monitoring, is that black women on the whole have a greater risk of poorer outcomes. And when we quantify that, we find that black women are between four and five times more likely to die whilst pregnant or quite soon afterwards compared to white women. Asian women also have a greater risk. They are twice as likely to die. And women who are of mixed backgrounds, mixed heritage, are three times more likely to die. What is really even sadder is that we find that despite our best efforts to try and understand and reduce this gap, we have not really been fully successful. Um, And at times we have found this gap increasing, particularly between black and white women. But I think it's important now that we work even harder to try and reduce this gap. Because ultimately, we don't want any woman, irrespective of her background, to have such a significantly poor outcome where she either loses her life or that of her unborn child. Do we know why?
0: Is it simply Black women aren't listened to, neglected, less likely to get top quality care? What's going on?
4: So it's a question that I get asked all the time. And it's difficult not to get tired in answering the question because when people ask me the question, they want me to provide simple solutions um, because we're humans and we like simple solutions. But the truth is, is that the solutions are not simple. So there are a few things we do know. We know that Black women are more likely to have certain conditions that puts them at greater risk of these poorer outcomes. And we have to remember, it's not just death. There are women that survive, but survive with severe negative long-term impact on their lives going forward and that's called morbidity we find that black women are more likely to have severe morbidity during pregnancy compared to white women so there is an issue of pre-existing medical conditions we know previously there was an issue with difficulty in accessing antenatal care we know how important antenatal care is in picking up um conditions that may result in poorer outcomes during pregnancy. And yes, people have often talked about language, but the truth of the matter is that if we were to look at a black middle-class woman who was slim, who didn't have any other pre-existing medical conditions, who had English as her first language, she still is more likely to have a poorer outcome. So it's about looking at maybe some softer signs or some Other things that have never previously been considered so for example if a woman from um who is determined to be black presents seeking help or has queries how much value do we place on her concerns how well do we listen to her voice how well do we validate any queries that she may have and there's been lots of data that suggests that black women are not listened to in the same way as women from other backgrounds. We also know that there are differences in terms of pain relief that's given to women dependent on their racial backgrounds. And really what this speaks to fundamentally is the different opinions that we have when we are approached by women of different ethnicities and different racial backgrounds so we know that when women overall present with chest pain for example they're less likely to be taken seriously compared to if it were a man and there's been good strong data that shows this So what that does is that speaks to generally our society and maybe some biases that we have against women. Mm. The truth is that we have those same biases against not only women, but women that come from different ethnic backgrounds, um, backgrounds that are different from the majority. And so when people ask me that question, I throw it back to say, well, how do we treat women from different backgrounds outside of the healthcare setting? Because the truth of the matter is that maternal mortality is just one lens through which we can examine racial inequalities. But if we were to look at um, inequalities in education or um, employment Mm. or schooling, we would see the same differences. So this is not something that is specific to maternity, in fact, if we were to widen it out, we would see healthcare inequalities distributed in the same way by way of racial differences in gynecology care, in mm. adolescent care, um, in neonatal care. So I, I answer that question just for us to think a little bit more about us as a society and how we create um, equality fundamentally within our society, such that Black women on not more likely to have pre-existing health conditions because they're living in poorer accommodation, for example, or they are in employments that doesn't allow them to climb up the social strata. Mm. It's complicated. Yes, very,
0: very complicated. But all of those factors are important because ultimately you think, oh, well, that's only this or that can't be helped or that. and, And the end of the story is four or five times more likely to die in childbirth. So that's, it's all of those things are important. Athena, um, yes. you've recently had two children.
1: How old is your little one? So my youngest is six months and my eldest is uh, two and a half now getting on to three years. And it's really interesting listening to Christine speak, because I can definitely speak on being treated differently based on, on my race. And the other thing to say is, we have a sixth sense for these things. No one says, you're Black so I'm saying this to you. But you receive information and you know, I wouldn't be getting this information or this wouldn't be said to me, I wouldn't be treated this way if I wasn't uh, a Black woman or perceived to be Black. I'm actually mixed race, but uh, I, I present as someone who's, who's Black on both sides. Um, not, not that, that always makes a difference. Um, I had an interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll tell two very concise and brief stories. I'll actually put it in a nutshell, um, for things that were told to me by midwives, uh, which isn't my stand-up because it's hilarious. Thing number one, black women are more stretchy. So,
3: um,
1: was it a I mean, white I, woman that said that to you? It was a white woman that said it. I'll give you some context. Okay. My, my, my second child was massive. She had, we had an, the final ultrasound came out, and they were like, "Yes, it's a." was like when you go fishing, and it's and, you, and it's tugging on the string. Like, oh, it's a big one! It's a big one! Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Oh. They were, like, and I felt big. I was, eat, I ate throughout the whole pregnancy. I was like, "I'm feeding something big here, I'm cooking up a big one." And mm. um, and he was nine pound four. It wasn't that big. It was big. It was, I thought it'd be twelve pound. I thought I'd, I thought I'd make the news, Deborah. It was nine pound four. <laughs> There's nothing. I was like, "What's that?" <laughs> but anyway, at the top, before he was born, about you know the last uh, scan I had, they said, "Oh, he's massive." And in the conversations I had about what the implications would be for that, my midwife said, "Look, you, black women are stretchy. <laughs> Apparently, it's the melanin, which is I don't, I don't know. I I don't think there's melanin on the inside. I, I don't. Have, I am not an expert in these things, so I don't trust that stretchiness. Um, but it, it, you know, it does make you it does make you wonder. Maybe maybe that's why we're so fast because we just we stretch." And we just go over, we just, you know, Mo Farah just does one big stretch. It's, oh, one lap done. Guys, why can't you keep up with me? It's a bizarre thing. And I think there's a willingness to believe or or impose nonsense on people who are black and that stems from a kind of a subconscious not even conscious a subconscious belief that black people are different in some way they're like mm-hmm. physically different this was in science books right 150 years ago if you went to school you'd have been told that black people have a different well not DNA it wasn't discovered then but they have a different makeup they're not human literally this is in the old times like we're like a third mm. human or something like that and it, that's almost a thread that continues to this day that enables someone to say that to me I have a, a, a related story a friend of mine took a child to the doctor and the nurse put a sticker on him and said that this might not stick because black people have oily skin we don't have oily skin we cream our skin okay but this woman had constantly come across kids with shiny skin because we we cream our kids when we take them out in public i don't know why we just do it my daughters get covered in cocoa butter you're not leaving house without shiny face i don't know why it's (laughs) just what we do deborah i don't know why but this this nurse handed then obviously encountered you know children who were african african descended with sort of creamy greasy skin and just thought oh it must be must be dna it's palmers it's not dna <laughs> it's palmers it's from right? boots <laughs> it's from boots exactly but that willingness to believe there was some kind of physical difference um mm-hmm. is what um is what is it would be an example of that hidden inequality. I'll just give you the last, last example with my newest. And I have, I have loads of examples, sadly. With my newest, I had problems breastfeeding. You just basically, you got too enthusiastic, ruined them. They absolutely ruined them. I won't go into more detail than that, but trust me, it wasn't pretty. Um, oh, wow. Nipple pizza, that's all I'll say. Anyway. Oh, aye, 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 <laughs> And it's very, aye, very aye, painful. Aye, aye. Yeah, yeah very painful oh, cr- but I was determined cr- to breastfeed right because I breastfed my first <laughs> daughter and it was really convenient you could do it on the bus and stuff so I was like let me try and get through this and I had a, a, a lactation consultant help me who was also a midwife and she said this is very unusual okay these are the kind of problems we normally find in kind of pale-skinned white women because your nipples are normally tougher these are the exact words your nipples are normally and I I was like you know, I'll be honest with you, there's nothing tough about it. my nipples, Deborah, like, to be honest, but we won't go there. But what I'm saying is, is like, this, these ideas, if you can mm. look at someone in the eye and say that to them and expect them to be like, oh, okay, well, I'm, it's an anomaly that my nipples hurt because a child's been sucking them for 12 hours straight. Like, of course they hurt. I'm a human being and that's flesh. And we're not like we were 10,000 years ago where we were just constantly nursing children. So our nipples are up for that. You know, we do it much less regularly with larger gaps in between. So our nipples are very soft and sensitive and it is not easy when you, when you have a newborn that speeds all the time. And that's what I needed to hear. I didn't need to hear mm-hmm. that, well, your nipple should be like leather. What's your problem? These things can lead to being treated in a certain way that can lead to negative outcomes. And it's very strange to have had first hand experience of that and to see it with your own eyes. I mean
0: you've put that in a very funny way because you're a stand-up comic and all of it's horrifying.
1: Mm. So I mean you've
0: made that entertaining. And of course craft craft. craft, It is craft. And of course, you know, I wanted to laugh because you've written great jokes, but holy fuck. And that and it's it's dehumanizing. And I'm horrified to hear that. And it's all part of the same continuum of what Christine's been talking about. Christine, when you hear that from Athena. Is this all part of the same continuum of not being listened to, being perceived as different, somehow tougher and hardier and you shouldn't be complaining? Is this all part of it?
4: It's definitely part of it. I mean, ultimately, we have to unpick what we know to be true that may be impacting and influencing outcomes and what we may have been taught that wasn't actually grounded in any fact. We we need to learn to start to unpick that. And, um, you know, there are things that would have been picked up through our training. I include myself as well, that would have been passed on Mm. in the faith that it was um, an understanding to help the women. But actually, as we improve our, our understanding and our cultural awareness, we understand it's a hindrance. Because ultimately, if we don't create spaces that are safe for all women, then how will women ever feel encouraged to speak up when they have concerns? Mm. If we devalue the pain or suffering, then how do they then speak up if they have concerns? And so one of the issues we know that is a problem is women presenting late if they have concerns. And as such, it then is much more difficult for us as healthcare professionals to then treat that condition. So it's really about empowering all women and making sure that as healthcare professionals, we um, act what we believe and what we want, which is that we want to treat all women equally. That means we have to listen. That means we have to understand that people present their concerns in different ways. Mm -hmm. That means that we have to try and judge less. We are all human beings, but I think for those of us that are in within the healthcare profession, we have an extra duty to try and work through whatever biases we may hold. But even more than that, I think we have a greater duty to really understand all of the factors that come to play that then result in these poorer outcomes And to be honest, I think for us to be successful, the um, key is not going to be held just with us healthcare professionals. It's with everybody. It's with the women and their families and their partners at the centre. It's with the community groups that are doing such great work. You know, it's not just me as the um, obstetric and gynaecology consultant that is going to dictate what we need to do sometimes the answers comes from the women themselves if we just listen or it comes from the community groups that have been doing such great work behind the scenes sometimes without any um, resources for a very long time so how do we empower those groups as well and how do we create a linkage that means together really as a community and as a society i think the society that we all want to belong to which is one that helps each other and make sure that if I'm going to rise up the ladder I pull my friends um with me whatever their ethnic backgrounds
0: mm. it's very very interesting and I think the other thing is to speak up if you're concerned and don't just be told to just go away and I know that's putting the onus on the patient and I know there are sometimes all sorts of cultural and you know your experience has been told to go away and that, you know, some high handed white professional might not listen to you. But this happened to a very, very, very dear friend of mine recently. It wasn't medical, but it was um, she was being harassed and she went to the police and she's a dark skinned black woman. And they just didn't they didn't take it seriously. And I think they looked at her and thought, oh, either you're being irrational or they thought, You're fine. You can look after yourself, whatever it was that they thought. But she did not let it go. And she went back and back and back and back. And now they've taken it really seriously. But she said, you know, she's in show business. And she said, like, I have been taught through the entitlement of show business. And she's successful to go, well, I'm not going away. Well, I'm not going away. And she said, and I feel kind of bad about that because what if I didn't have that extra privilege? And I'm like, no, you've done exactly the right thing because you pushing forth with your relative privilege (laughs) opens the door for so many women behind you that they think, oh, actually, no, we should have taken this seriously. And it becomes more of a process and a procedure. So if you are listening to this podcast, you are by definition in a more privileged group because you're engaging with, you know, feminism. So please don't be told to go away and please go early and often. And if you think there's something wrong, there might be. And ask for a second opinion and a third opinion and don't be told to go away.
3: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: I mean, Belle, you're an MP. You are somebody who fights for women in your constituency. Can you tell us what we can be doing about this as a democracy?
5: Well, I think firstly, we need to accept that it's happening. I was really alarmed to find uh, in the recent race report, the one that's caused so much controversy, um, because quite frankly, the report. People, it's about, you know, black, Asian, minority, ethnic people are not happy uh, about the report, the large majority, and, and many of the different organisations that campaign for racial equality. Uh, that it said that the figures, whilst upsetting, something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing, whilst upsetting, they were too low for the government to set a particular target, but they would try.
0: Five times March is not too low. What is that? Too low. Um, what are they looking for there?
5: Are they gonna I've, I've wait till it's ten times as much God sake. I, I, I personally found it very offensive because um've I've been in the situation myself I've, I've, I've suffered a stillbirth and and to say that um thinking going back to what I experienced and going back to what I've heard since then especially since there's been a lot more campaigning around it to say that those figures are not enough um you know speaks to a real devaluation of, of our our lives and you know then people then question why people, feel the need to say that black lives matter if you're effectively saying that black women four times being four times more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth is not significant enough to set a target to end it but you'll try then that's effectively what you're saying and and the embrace report picked up some other things that the children of black women are 50% more likely to die neonatally and have a 121% increased chance of stillbirth and with figures like that, I think to myself, did my child have a chance? And then if you're, um, uh, don't want to get these figures wrong. And if you're women of African heritage, if you're women of, of Caribbean heritage, I think 80 something percent and 80 something percent respectively um, are more likely to suffer a near miss. Um, now, a near miss is what I, I suffered in that, in that you, you know, you nearly have a situation which ends your life. I believe, and Christine, you might want to correct me if I'm, if I'm explaining um, a near miss correctly. Is the near miss speaking about the mother's experience or um, a, a near miss of something happening to the child as well?
4: So both, you know, both, a near okay. miss is, is a serious incident that, you know, we feel could have been prevented and ultimately at its worst could have led to the loss of the life of the mother and or her child. And so really what we want to do is to try and learn from those near misses so that A, we definitely don't have a death and B, we don't have a near miss again.
5: Thank you. So if you, as a women of African or Caribbean heritage, are over 80% more likely to suffer this near miss. And again, still, it's not considered significant enough to set a target. I think that's wrong. And I think you'll find whilst the government are saying they're not, I can't think of... Um, you know, presenting this to members of Parliament generally, as we were able to do uh, recently during a debate that was held in in the House of Commons, um, thanks to five times more who uh, put down a petition and it got 187,000 signatures, which was amazing. But it took a very long time to get them a debate in the House. They did eventually get um, a a debate in the House. I, I can't think of a single member at that time that would say that, no, the government shouldn't set a target. But this is the government's line on this issue. So ultimately, that's in terms of democracy, that needs to change. We can't be saying that, you know, this is a country that works for everybody. And then when we're seeing this issue specifically affecting black women and their children, saying that it's not that high a number, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try. And that seems
0: like a good time to cut to our report from our investigative journalist, Matilda Mallinson, who is talking to someone from Five Times More about their campaign and what we can do to help.
2: Atenuka Elway, why did you found Five Times More? Um,
6: Well, in a nutshell, I started it because I didn't have a very positive experience giving birth to the first baby, who is now almost four. Um, Back in 2017, it just wasn't a nice experience for me. I had preeclampsia, which was diagnosed very late, was induced, and I just wasn't believed when I was told, you know, when I told them I was in labour and just left to kind of labour alone, and it was just really awful. And in the end, I ended up having a... Uh, forceps delivery which isn't the end of the world but I just felt like it could have been avoided you know I wasn't given any pain pain relief because I wasn't believed um it was just it just wasn't a nice experience and I, and I just left thinking you know, thank god I've got my baby but it was just, it was very traumatic for me the way that I was just talked down, um, spoken to in a matter that, oh, you know, I I knew I was in pain. I knew my body, you know, was was telling me, look, something's happening. And the midwife was like, oh, if this is, if this is what you're like now, imagine what you'll be like in, in, when you're actually in labour, not knowing that i my, my labour was progressing very, very quickly, you know? Um, so, yeah, it, was, it just wasn't very nice. It wasn't very nice at all. And I run a mummies group for black women and black mothers called Mums in Tea. That came out of a need to connect with mums that basically look like me because I found, again, like, kind of in my area, I was just the only kind of young black mum going to all the children's centres and the play groups, and I was just like, no, where are we? Why are we not coming out? Like, what's what's going on? And... And yeah, I just decided to build my own tribe and that's how Mums and Tea came about. And the more I spoke to like more black women that were coming to my meetups, the more I realised a lot of women kind of had very similar experiences of not being listened to, being talked out of their pain, which led to kind of further complications down the line, like emergency C-section, sepsis. I felt like I wanted to channel all that anger into something productive I was doing my research and I actually found out that this isn't new information. This has been going on for decades. And like when I spoke to my mum about, oh my God, mum, what was it like giving birth to, to me and my siblings? She was almost brought to tears because she recounted an experience that literally could have happened yesterday. And we're talking 25, 30 odd years ago. So I just felt like, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. Let's do something about this. So, yeah, that's
2: how it started. <laughs> These experiences that you're describing and the, the data that we're talking about here, it is really scary. So how do you go about mitigating that anxiety? Did you have fears going into your second pregnancy after experiencing and hearing all of this? I guess it is very scary. Um, we're very big
6: on... We don't want to scaremonger women. We don't want to, oh yeah, it's five times more, but like, okay, what next? What can we do? So we're very big on like tangible action. It's about being very aware of the statistics, knowing that this is potentially something that could happen, but giving people the agency to speak up. And yeah, I was I was a little bit worried going into my, my second pregnancy, but I felt, way more confident because I took the steps from my own campaign (laughs) Um, and I just felt so much more confident in advocating for myself.
2: Mm, Right, so solutions-oriented, action-oriented. Why don't you tell us what some of those actions are and how our listeners can get involved?
6: Oh wow okay um <laughs> we have six steps for for women we've got steps for health professionals we We're not blaming health professionals but we are trying to make sure that health professionals are educated about what is going on. We've got steps for partners because they're often left out <laughs> so those are our steps we We started off with the five times more selfie as well that is was just a way to bring back uh, about awareness and and continue on conversations. We ask people to continue to write to their MPs. So we have an MP letter writing campaign. We have a pledge with uh, tangible actions that MPs can make sure they're doing in their local areas. We also have our Do You Know Your Rights uh, campaign that we launched with AIMS. So basically women have got their frequently asked questions and we aim to answer them on our website as well. So we have plenty of resources I will I am almost done I promise (laughs) in the month of advocacy we had our black maternity experience survey that we launched Um, that's coming up to an end very very soon I think end of this month we wanted to basically bridge the gap in the missing data so we know what the data is for mortality but we don't actually know what the data is for morbidity those illnesses the illnesses the things that I know to be true from speaking to black women but there isn't actually any data for we we just wanted to make sure that our voices are indeed heard. And, and the project is actually being conducted by a team of all black women and professionals. One of the key asks for our campaign is that actually black women should be involved at every level when it comes to decision making about their care. So that is kind of a snapshot
2: of what we have done in the past year. And this is Just your action points. So this is all on top of the huge petition and debate that you managed to achieve in Parliament. Now, your selfie campaign, is that for anyone? I mean, can cis white men get involved in your selfie campaign? Yeah
6: yeah yeah yep yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah. this is so we can keep the conversation going so our five times more selfie literally you take a selfie with your hand up like a stop sign but to also represent the the fact that we are a, a five, four to five times more likely um so we've got that and hashtag 5x more you'll see if you go on there you'll see like literally like we've got thousands of people that have taken the selfie and and are Just helping us to to push that conversation to keep it going.
2: (laughs) Okay, so no excuses. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm just going to rehash quickly for our listeners. You've got steps for health workers, partners and women and birthing people on your website. You've got a pledge for MPs to help in a letter rating campaign, which is also on your website. And you've got this Black Maternity Health Survey, which you would love people to fill out before it concludes at the end of this month. So on that... Do you have any closing remarks to give us? I would say
6: very proud of where we are right now, but there's still a lot of work to do. I'll put this into context. In 1991, my mum gave birth to me, and she, as a black woman, was more likely to die. When I gave birth to my son in 2017, uh, five times more. If I allow my daughter to continue to be up against a statistic because of the fact that she's black, should she chose to give birth when she is of age, I think that would be a real injustice. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot to, you know, obviously, to take in. But we should never, ever take our foot off. Off the gas. Ever.
2: Atanuke Awe, co-founder of Five Times More, Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to all listening. I know my son was really exciting
2: in the background. It's making noise, but it makes for better listening. It's authentic, right? <laughs> I think it's a really good reminder of, of why this is so important.
0: Hello, guilty feminists. Good news. We are back live and in the theatre. We're at King's Place in London on the 22nd of June at 7:30 p.m. That's meant to be the day after we have fully come out of lockdown. We'll see about that now, we don't know, but we'll definitely be there one way or the other. And then we'll also be back at King's Place on the 12th of July. Both of those shows are at 7:30 p.m. and you can come and be in the live audience or watch from home in the live feed. Go to kingsplace.co.uk for tickets or follow the link in the show notes there's a new Big Speeches workshop with Jessica Regan. Big Speeches uses the tools of actor training and the performer-audience relationship to increase your confidence, up your presentation game and access the charisma you possess to take your space in any room. All great feminist things. It's delivered over Zoom with Jess and fellow RADA alumni Cyrus Lowe helping to facilitate. These sessions are on 26th of June, that's a Saturday at 10.30am, Sunday the 27th of June at 3pm, Saturday, the 24th of July at 10.30am and Sunday, the 25th of July at 3pm. That's UK time, but you could join from anywhere in the world. Go to guiltyfeminist.com slash speeches to get tickets. So we heard from five times more there, what we can do to help with that campaign. And I know our listeners are going to want to get on board with that. Bell, what else can we do? Do we need to be writing to our MP? I mean, there's no point writing to your MP if your MP is Bell, because she knows and she's fighting. But if your MP is someone who isn't Bell, and that will be quite a lot of people listening, uh, (laughs) should they write to their MPs and tell them, please ask the government to actually do something about this? Because what's the point of commissioning a report and then going... Five times more is four to five times more. I don't know. Is that is that a thing? Do we care? What's the point of having the report if you're just going to go?
5: Oh, nothing we can do. I mean, the report was on racism in institutional racism across the country overall, mm. but mm-hmm. it, it touched on that definitely. And yeah, I don't. I don't think that's good enough at all. I definitely think you should write to your MP. Even if I am your MP, please do write to me. Uh, Other MPs think that's weird, but I don't mind you writing to me because I will respond to you. I think it's important that you should exercise your democratic right and remember that your Member of Parliament works for you and as such, and they're given staff to help them with their emails. Mm -hmm. So don't feel too bad. Write to your MP. Um, Ask your MP, and and I'm sure five times more would have told you this, to take the five times more pledge and have your MP speak to people, um, specifically local healthcare providers, to see what they can do and to monitor the situation actually speak to black women locally i think one of the things that's made a major difference in terms of this campaign overall is women speaking up about their experiences it's very i suppose to to get up and and to roll off a a, a list of statistics off the top of 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 your head can it sounds terrible but it sounds even worse when you put a human story to it and and make people realize that we are talking about real people we are talking about um children and as as christine said we're talking about what, what is meant to be a a joyous time in, in in your life as a woman and to find that your experience could leave you or your child dead or both both of you dead. I, that, that's something I was told. Uh, you know, there will be one or two outcomes. Um, it will be you and your child or it will be your child. So to humanise that story, I think, makes a massive difference in terms of how people view it and what they're willing to do in terms of campaigns.
0: If there was ever a time for feminism, this is it's now. Athena, have you got any questions for either... Christine or Belle that you're burning to ask?
1: Yeah, and this is a big question, okay? Bearing in mind our politicians aren't able to give us a a state-led solution, what can we do, particularly as black expecting women or black women who know women are expecting, what can we do to, we can't fix it, but how can we keep ourselves more safe from these statistics i know similar to what deborah said earlier like about her friend i'm a fairly articulate educated person i could navigate the system when i heard these things i knew how to identify them and just be like i'm going to bat that comment away really quickly (laughs) because that's not correct but i know not everyone has that ability or they might not be in that mindset or you might even believe the midwife or the doctor because they're health professionals so what what's our solution whilst we wait for the state to help us out that's a big question i know that
5: i would just say to be informed as you said one of the major issues um, affecting most disadvantaged communities is information um, and actually knowing that you can advocate for yourself at the same time i feel awful that you have to advocate for yourself we have a national health service every single person working in that national health service should be advocating for us every single time somebody presents you know with an issue or is is experiencing a pregnancy or anything else i think that's the case but until it is, until we have that equality that we need, it's making sure you are the most informed possible. And, you know, as you were talking about, Deborah, you were talking about your friend, uh, speaking to going back to the police again. It's sometimes, and it's terrible to say, it's about being that person. Is that being that person that is going to be completely dogged in, in making a point and saying, this, this is what I believe to be true. And, and you're not so you being selfish. To You're changing process.
0: You are absolutely the opposite of being selfish because that doctor is forced to listen by you and then goes, Oh, good shit. I've just said this to another black woman. I made an assumption. Maybe I should relook at their case. And it changes also the expectation that they'll just go away and they won't cause any trouble. So you are shifting the culture when you demand more.
5: Absolutely.
4: I think for me, um, I absolutely agree with all of that. Um, I think It's important, first of all, I would say to any black woman who is pregnant or indeed an Asian woman who's pregnant or considering a pregnancy, first of all, to not feel scared. Like the last thing I would want is for somebody to feel scared whilst they are pregnant, because it's important to stress again that for the most part, most women will have a good, wonderful experience and a safe experience. However, there are always things that we can do to make sure that we are more likely to have those those good outcomes. And it is exactly what we're saying here, that if you have any concerns, speak up, speak to your midwife, speak to your obstetrician, speak to your GP. When you come for an appointment, obviously COVID has dramatically reduced the amount of visitors that could come in, but you are still allowed one partner to attend your antenatal clinic appointments and your scans. So Having another person there, I think, is very useful as an extra advocate who can sometimes remember to ask some questions that you may forget at the time. I think in the lead up to appointments, it's really good practice to write down any questions or queries you may have. Because often what happens is that, um, you know, by the time we get to the appointment, we absolutely forget some of the questions that we have make sure that you have the number for the labour wards and the triage or maternity day assessment units. Many units now have an email helpline or a telephone helpline. And again, there are also other ways to reach out to groups that are supportive, so such as Five Times More or the Safer Motherhood Project. There are great campaign groups that will help you navigate your pregnancy journey. Five Times More created the five steps campaign for women and their partners um, that touches on some of these things I've mentioned. And the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, together with Five Times More, also created the five steps campaign for healthcare professionals to remind them about how they can support women as they attend for their antenatal clinic appointments or indeed when they're in labour. So as I said, it's a combined process. It's not about placing the responsibility completely at the women. It's about us as healthcare professionals also recognising the important role that we play. So if you are in
0: healthcare, you want to be looking at the Five Times More website if you haven't already been introduced to them. Athena, did you have another question?
1: um no i didn't and i but i think that advice is is spot on uh, particularly understanding the resources that are there at your disposal you can walk into maternity triage just walk in and say give me my blood pressure reading now you can do that guys do it now do it it's great i, I have low blood pressure never knew but because i got tested so often but you you really can and christine said something really interesting earlier like we have really low um, mortality rates as a country overall You know, so it's really important what you said about not getting stressed about it. And we have those low mortality rates because of the resources that we do have. Um, Mm. And it's about understanding that we can take advantage of those resources. Um, They belong to all of us Mm. and we shouldn't be afraid to use them. Throughout my pregnancies, I walked into clinics with every ache I had, with everything that didn't feel quite right you know, and I was tested and I was reassured and my story is I was actually welcomed. My issues were really um, doing childbirth and, and after my childbirth but throughout my pregnancy I have to say that at every stage I, it was almost like they were just coming for a chat. <laughs> you know, like they were bored, you know, and I'd love for everyone to have that experience and if they don't have that experience insist on it. turn up with biscuits, have not put the kettle on, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, really use that resource. It's for you. you get, we get our own wing guys in a hospital. It's for us. We should hang out there. But, you know, to be serious about it is, I believe it is about accessing the resources that will, are there for us. Um, and I'm uh, going on, I'm going to say one more thing. The most troubling aspect of the data is the fact it affects all black women regardless of class. Because class is the thing you would imagine to impact health inequalities the most. Your socioeconomic standing affects how you live. It can affect your health conditions, your education. So it is, it's remarkable that you cannot educate your way out of this. You can't get a PhD and be like, I'll be fine. You can't educate your way out of it. You can't spend your way out of this. You can't get yourself a Gucci handbag as opposed to a TK Maxx handbag. You can't do it. That's shocking. That's absolutely shocking. I've got a conservatory. I'm just as at risk as someone who doesn't have a conservatory, guys. Which is weird because the class system in this country tells us that when you become middle class or upper class, you, can, you spend your way out of these inequalities. And that's in healthcare. That is, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a researcher, but generally I would imagine in healthcare that is the case for many reasons that I've, I've discussed. So the fact this is affecting black women across the board means that there is something going very wrong. And my personal experiences, like I said, of childbirth and postnatal care um, indicate that. Um, so use your resources. They're there for you. And, you know, be dogged. When you said that word dogged, Bella, I was like, that's exactly what we need to be. We need to say, we need to be determined to get answers we want when we want them, when they are not available for us.
0: I know exactly how you meant that, but just to clarify, it's shocking that money often does buy people's way out of things. And also for another reason, I understand why you're saying it's shocking that money in this case doesn't because yeah. it implies a deeper racism, but we don't want anybody, with a conservatory or without, ever <laughs> to you know get bad service at the NHS, and we don't want rich people to get better service. That is not what we want no, at all. No, I understand that, what you're saying. I just wanted to clarify yes. it so nobody wrote in and said was a cynical blend you implying, uh, because I know that of course you're not implying that. You're saying in this horrendous capitalist matrix, it is an interesting observation here. So this is racism this isn't uh, racism is a big component to this. It's not simply some people are poorer and some people are richer, which we hate in the first instance.
5: um I just following on from what Athena was saying, another thing that I would like people to stop doing is to stop blaming black women oh, yes. It's the absolute worst thing I, I didn't grow up ever wanting to be a politician. in fact, I thought they were they were terrible. Um, I trained as a biomedical scientist initially, so to know how everything works, then to experience something like that. And then to know that logically it couldn't have been anything you did, but as a woman blaming yourself, and then to find that when you talk about the issue, people want to blame you as well. Mm. Maybe you did this, maybe you did that. Maybe it's black women's genetics. If this is happening to black women, it must be their genes. Mm. Actually, it's probably because they're, they're fat. I've heard That said, one of the health ministers actually, when the embrace report first came out, said, oh, actually, um, you know, black women are not dying of pregnancy and childbirth. What's actually happening is they've got all of these other comorbidities like obesity, but obviously we are going to look into it. So all of these other things, Mm. yes, there certainly are issues with comorbidities, but there isn't always an issue with comorbidities. And actually a pregnancy can end up affecting a black woman in a way, you know, with the near misses we discussed earlier, making it, um, so that they go on to have health problems after they're pregnant. I could say I hadn't even had chicken pox when I was pregnant. Do you know what I mean? I was, I was the smallest I ever was. So to then turn around and say, actually, it's something that you've done. Mm-hmm. It's because of your genes. You are to blame when already a woman's probably feeling so terrible about the situation and thinking those thoughts that are so full of blame when we know that there is something clearly going wrong in, in our healthcare system that's making this happen. It's not black women's fault.
0: And Belle, can I just say as well that fat women often say everything gets blamed on, oh, well, you're fat. And actually, that is so simplistic because it's really the fat around your organs. It's not really visible fat for a start. But secondly, that is not generally the driving cause or it's not often the driving cause. And it's not often anything to do with that. But even if it is, if it's the only thing you're looking at and the only thing you're prepared to discuss it's well lose weight and get back to me in the meantime something terribly wrong is wrong and that is not being analyzed so can we also say the same thing for the fat narrative that we've got to get past it you know people are all different sizes and shapes you know i'm always going to have a big hips and bum and thighs and that's my body shape i believe that bmi gaslights me um because It's true. I went to the doctor and I said, but I feel I should lose weight because the BMI, blah, 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 blah. And this is not something I'd normally say on the podcast because weight loss stuff can be very triggering. And she went, I am looking at your blood work and I am looking at you and you do not need to lose weight. And she said, the BMI is a useless tool and forget about it and I was like oh wow and you know it made me feel really really good but Uh,
5: your BMI you're absolutely right and if the doctor yourself herself was telling you that it's interesting because they still continue to use it and when we're talking about BMI BMI doesn't work for black women either it's based on a standard which doesn't work for us at all I was overweight when I was a size six to eight top sprinter in my school in in secondary school, according to BMI, uh, according to the BMI. And that's because I was extremely active. And at that time, you know, a girl's school uh, because of eating disorders, et cetera, we went through this period where, you know, they would weigh us and and, and measure us. And they had to sit down and give me a, a long talk about how, yes, I know this is where I showed up on the chart, but please, I shouldn't think about losing any weight because, You know, it's just, it's an estimate, blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself, so why are we even doing this? If you're telling Mm. me that actually, you know, that because of my African heritage, this doesn't really work. And you know that looking at me and knowing from the sports I do at school, et cetera, that actually I couldn't possibly be overweight, but this is what this chart tells me.
0: I know. And then the fashion as well was like when I came up, so Kate Moss and it was really awful. And now, fortunately, my hips and bum have come in, because Jesus loves me. But um, I truly believe if there's a God, she's changed the fashion, um, because it, we were too long in the wilderness. It wasn't fair. But that it's a great example, though, of the BMI just not being a suitable tool for somebody who has a certain body shape that is completely genetic and how they're always going to be. And so, so much gets blamed on it that is actual
1: actual bullshit and lifestyle um, just stories in up, but like mm. you know if you read a bmi reading and you don't look at lifestyle then it doesn't mean anything a few years ago i was not under nine stone and i'm five foot five so 165 centimeters i was underweight you could see ribs okay i was training too much and i was too busy to eat okay but my bmi was fine right it's lifestyle mm-hmm. someone should have been looking at me and saying for you have a burger or something you look terrible but mm-hmm. um so I, have always disregarded BMI, and, you know, when my, as my kids progress through school, if someone dares put them on scales, oh, they can have to, have to, come through me. You know, um, I, I think it's really well, and the frustrating thing is the uselessness of BMI is so well-documented. This is not groundbreaking stuff here. It's mm. so well-documented that BMI doesn't work. And if it, if you are going to use it, it doesn't work on isolate, in isolation. You've got to look at, at people's wider context, their heritage mm-hmm. and their lifestyle. Um, and yet yeah. we still, they still insist on it. I don't know. I don't know what BMI has got on our doctors, you know, like, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what secrets they've got that, you know, if it's BMI is this thing, like you've got to use me. Otherwise I will tell people about your gambling habits or something. I don't know. I have no idea, <laughs> but it's insane. It's insane. It's so well documented that BMI doesn't work. Um, so just to add to that, uh, it's a, it's a crazy system. It's like a lottery. It's more of a lottery than anything.
0: It really, really is. So don't be put off. And don't be turned away because a doctor or anybody is telling you, oh, well, the BMI says you need to lose weight and therefore that's the problem. And you're going, no, I have a sharp pain in my appendix. It is not because of weight that you are not in a position to tell me to lose anyway. Everybody has their own relationship with the body. And I should say that. And everybody, in my opinion, is absolutely entitled to engage with a doctor, engage with what makes them feel good in terms of exercise and food and how muscly or light or strong or or otherwise they want to be. I don't want to be telling anybody that they're letting the whole school down if they lose weight either. I think that's important to say because I think there's a sometimes that feeling now that if you're a feminist, you're not allowed to lose weight. So I just want to say as part of this whole conversation, have your own relationship with your body and be brave. When you talk to healthcare professionals and be noisy and be loud, because if you're noisy and loud, you start to change the culture and you change it for other women who may actually not be able to be noisy and loud because of their background or what's happened to them in life or culturally or whatever it is. Um, Please, please do that. Um, In the meantime, please donate some money if you've got any to five times more or look on the website and see what other support they might need. Even if you're just sharing it online and raising awareness and getting other people to engage, then you are doing something wonderful today. So please go and do that or tell somebody about it with your mouth. You don't have to be on Twitter. Christine, as you are a doctor, can I just ask you one quick thing? Is it true that after menopause, I'm going to age in dog years? I just do need to know.
4: <laughs> no, From a- I, 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 I absolutely would not say that at all. Um, I have such great colleagues that I work with um, that support women and indeed some of our colleagues who are going through the menopause. Um, and I see the menopause as just another joyous chapter in the lives of women. So You are um, so
0: much reassuring that that man that I met... Oh, my God. Where were you then? (laughs) Working. Probably saving a life. Yeah. Okay. fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Yeah. So my feelings about fat migration down my face are exaggerated. I shouldn't worry too much. Okay. fine. Fine. Thank you, Christine. You have been Dr. Christina Ketchy. You have been the most outstanding guest. You have educated us so much. Uh, You are so brilliant and articulate and wonderful and joyful and everything. And we really appreciate your time, uh, your expertise and your ability to communicate your expertise. Thank you so much. A big round of applause for Dr. Christine, everybody. Thank you very
5: much. Uh, Sorry, it was just one more thing. um, Just about how fantastic five times more are. They are completely um, run by volunteers. And they've been able to raise awareness about this issue um, in a way that I haven't seen before. So I'm just really proud of all of the work that they're doing and the massive campaign that they've built and behind them to the extent that they've actually been able to get into certain hospitals. St Thomas's, uh, where my best friend just had her baby, actually, is doing a program where they are training midwives to listen to black women. And when the midwives have gone through this training, they wear a little pin on their security pass that says that you know they're there, they're willing to stop and listen to women's concerns. I think it's fantastic. We're just starting somewhere where the government haven't even thought to go.
1: Wonderful. 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 Can I just say uh, one thing five yeah. well, just a quick one? They hooked sure. me up with a free hypnotherapy pack. I follow because yeah. I yeah, they they I follow them on Instagram and I, I try and support this small way I can. And they offer just to say that if you are pregnant, it's not just campaigning. They do offer things to assist you and I learned lots about hemotherapy and it's great and I just would not have touched I would not have used it I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have occurred to me uh, more. Well. so you know they're almost providing what I said earlier about what can we do if the state isn't helping us they're almost doing that you know they're taking matters into their own hands and it is much appreciated it really is
0: and wherever you're listening to this podcast you will find organizations like five times more and activists in your country and your community uh, give them a search and see what you can do about uh, contacting your representatives if you do not live in the United Kingdom. Belle, you have been a really phenomenal guest. Thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, We always appreciate you, and we appreciate how hard you must work to be advocating for all your constituents and all of these many and various campaigns that you do get behind. Uh, Please give a big round of applause for Belle Rabirani. (laughs) Thank you so much. Athena Kevin, you've been a fantastic
1: co-host as always. Do you have anything to plug? I do have loads of things to plug. Well, to, not loads, two things to plug. I've got a Radio 4 series on BBC Sounds um, called Cancel Culture. Please listen to it. I, I'm really proud of it and I'd love people to listen to it. And I have a podcast called Keeping Athena Company. Uh, listen to the BBC Sounds one, it's better quality. My podcast is horrendously produced. I don't have a Tom. <laughs> i just have me so the i would go would go with bbc sounds that would be a better one
0: i'm sure they're both amazing <laughs> but i'm really excited i haven't listened to Cancer culture yet i have listened to your other one which is wonderful you have been listening to the guilty feminist with me Deborah francis white guest co-host athena cablenu and our very special guests bell Ribeiro, Addy. And Dr. Christine Akechi. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salinski for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craft, Magina D'Sio, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Woo! Okay. Anything else you wanted to say?
1: No, got it all we'll out. Do. Got
0: it out of the system. Thank
2: Perfect. you.